We'll begin with verse 26 and read through verse 35 to introduce the subject. And the subject I wish to preach to you on this morning is the lamb for the slaughter. The lamb for the slaughter. Beginning in Acts chapter 8, verse 26 through 35. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all the treasure, had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning, and sitting in his chariot read Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And then, of course, the scripture goes on in the next five verses to tell us, how Philip took the man down into the water and baptized him as he was converted by this sermon of Jesus Christ. I now would like to call your attention to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, from which this site is taken. The specific verses cited in Acts, chapter 8, are verses 7 and 8 from the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. I'd like to begin with the first verse and notice different portions of this scripture. You'll note that if you have a Bible that indicates the messianic prophecies, but whether by a star or some other device, every verse in this 53rd chapter is, is so marked, indicating that its entirety is prophetic of the coming Christ. The reading of this chapter, as we shall see, is one single unit of thought. And since its mid-portion is specifically cited at, by a man who was led by the Spirit of God to preach Jesus as being a source of a sermon about the redemptive efficacy of the blood of Christ, then it is not untoward for us to take this chapter as preaching Jesus. The first verse begins, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? This teaches us a very important lesson, and that is that there must be, in the true preaching of the gospel, a revelation of Jesus Christ to the heart of the hearer. There must also be, of course, regeneration. There must be the quickening of the soul so that it can hear and understand and believe. We're told in no uncertain terms in 1 John 5, verse 1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. We're told in John 5 and 24, Whoso heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. 
We're told in Acts 13, 48, that as many as were ordained unto eternal life believed. These and other verses declare plainly that regeneration must come before faith. There must be a change of the nature, a quickening of the soul in order for the individual to hear and understand and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there must be one other thing added. It is not enough just to be changed by grace when it comes to believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. A person can be believing, can be changed, can be sufficiently enlivened by God so that his soul's destiny is sure and secure, cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ, and yet not fully conversant with Scripture. We see the apostles about whom there is no doubt that they were changed by the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ in their salvation. Yet when they walked those three years with him, there were many things he spoke to them about his coming death and his resurrection. They did not understand at the time, though they were definitely regenerated. We have the example of Peter, of whom we clearly read in Scripture, where the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was asking the disciples, said, Who do ye say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Peter replied, speaking for them, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus Christ said, Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So we see the necessity of revelation coming to this individual. Also we see the proof that this individual was a son of God because we read in Romans 8 that as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So we know, therefore, beyond a doubt that Peter was regenerated at the point that God's revelation came to him to reveal to him and the other disciples that Jesus was the Son of God. And yet, a few chapters later in a parallel gospel, which would be about six months in the time as we reckon it between the two events, Jesus Christ said to Peter, When thou art converted, strengthen the brethren showing that Peter was not yet fully converted to understand the import of all of the gospel news that was being given to him by Jesus Christ. Here we have a clear example of a man who was born again by the grace of God, yet lacks something that allows his full understanding of the scriptural message. That something is the same thing from God that we saw at the beginning of his experience when it was said, Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is from heaven. It is the revelation of God. That revelation from God must come to an individual in order for them to fully understand. We find the example of Lydia a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who was baptized, she and her household, and of whom it, it subsequently says, whose heart was opened that she attended unto the things that were spoken by Paul. We see the disciples on Emmaus Road who walked with a resurrected Christ for an hour or more while he talked to them about the scriptures and the prophecies concerning himself. Yet he had hid himself from them, the Bible saying, with he withholding their eyes that they knew him not. And he expounded to them the things in scripture concerning himself. And then toward the end of his walk with them as he was taken from them, it says that he opened their eyes so that they could know him. And afterwards... They testified how our hearts burned within us when he walked with us and talked with us by the way, thus showing the necessity 
of revelation from God to fully understand the import of the gospel message. He subsequently that same day, miles away, appeared in the upper room to the disciples as they were locked together for safety in that room. Appeared in the midst of them, passing through the solid walls and locked door. They were affrighted, for they believed they had seen a spirit. And he asked them for food and ate it before them, and testified, See, a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. And then the Bible says he opened their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. See, the necessity of revelation from God in order to understand. And finally, in Ephesians 1.19, we read there about how the Apostle describes the coming of this light of knowledge to the believer. When the Apostle Paul says, verse 7, 18 beginning, the eyes of your... 17 beginning that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling, and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places. You see, the same power of God that raised the dead body of Jesus Christ back to life out of the tomb is the same power of God that reveals to us Christ in the Scriptures when the gospel is preached unto us. And so we read in Isaiah 53, 1, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? There must be revelation from God. And this answers the first question. Who hath believed our report? Why those to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. An interesting thing about this verse is that it tells us that Jesus Christ is not the handsome, tall, dramatic, suasive individual that he so often played in the movies. If I were going to make a life of Christ, the man I'd probably pick to play Jesus Christ would be Ernest Borgnine. Somebody like that. I think that would do nicely. Ernest Borgnine is certainly a dramatic persona. He certainly plays good parts, and he has a good presentation on the stage. But one thing that cannot be said of him, he is not a beauty. And that was exactly what was testified of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has no comeliness, nor form, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. It's not that he was ugly, it's that he wasn't beautiful. He wasn't handsome. He did not have a great, majestic, muscular form. He was a plain, ordinary, average-appearing man. Why is this? Because, you see, the Bible tells us that the Lord does not look upon us as we look upon one another. The Lord looks upon the inward parts and not the outward parts. That which the world so enjoys and puts in such reputation and values so highly, the Lord considers of no value whatsoever. So he did not clothe the Lord Jesus Christ in form and comeliness and beauty in the time of his humiliation. 
In the time when he walked among us in the flesh, that time of which the apostles spoke when they said, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It wasn't form and beauty and comeliness that they beheld. It was grace and truth. Things of the Spirit, things that have to be revealed to the heart and soul that's been quickened from sin in order for that person to perceive God in the grace of His flesh. That was the form in which He appeared. Now, once we understand that, that there was no form nor beauty nor comeliness that we would desire Him, once we understand that the physical appearance of Jesus Christ Himself is such that were He to pass us on the street, we would pay Him probably no notice at all. Being average, ordinary, and of no particular outstanding attraction. Bear in mind some of the what become very interesting scriptures at this point. One of the disciples came to Christ one time and he says, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. What's the Father look like? Tell us what God appears like if we could see him with our eyes. And the Lord looked at him and said, Philip, have I been so long time with you and you know me not? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Paul writes in the first chapter of Hebrews in the opening verses that he is the express image of his person. The word express being imprinted or stamped like, the, like a seal in wax so that there's a symbol left after you've stamped it. Or like the face on a coin stamped by the press that forms that slug into a coin of the realm and leaving the face of the king or the president or whatever imprinted in it in a bas-relief on its surface. So Jesus Christ was the express image, the pressed-out image, which is what express means. The pressed-out image of God in the raw flesh of human nature. He that has seen me has seen the Father. I want to tell you something quite interesting. If God Himself... We're talking about the Almighty God who waved His hand and spoke His voice and the heavens and all the universe and the population of the stars appeared. We're talking about the God who said, Let there be light and light fill the universe. We're talking about the God who spoke and it was so. And a world appeared out of darkness and then fashioned itself according to the multitudinous forms of life that we can perceive about us. That God of all glory, as the Bible calls Him, if that God were to divest himself of glory and appear among men in his otherwise ordinary visual aspect, he no more than Christ would be perceived in a crowd, for there would be no form nor comeliness nor beauty that we should desire. Because Christ had it not, and Christ is the express image of his person. He that has seen me has seen the Father. You see what is important to God, what is beautiful to God, what is glorious to God, and that in which His glory participates in and manifests itself through is not beauty as men define it. It is something entirely different. It is, as the Apostle declares, full of grace and truth. And so, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. And he hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. 
He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. More characteristics of Jesus Christ when he walked among us. Despised and rejected of men. There's an old Spanish proverb which I've cited before that says to this effect, He that speaks truth speaks often to himself. If that be true, and anyone that's experienced a little bit of life knows it to be so, how much more would it be said of that one who is truth himself, having declared unto us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If a man that speaks truth speaks often to himself, then how must it be with the man who is truth? Must he not often walk by himself? Do not we see him on the night of his temptation when he went into the garden to pray and beseech God that if by any means this cup that lay before his human nature might pass from him, that he abjured and encouraged the disciples to wait and pray with me, and then he would go away from them to be alone and pray. And two or three times he returned and found them asleep. And is it any wonder we read in the prophetic words of the Holy Prophet that I looked around about me and there was none to help. Therefore, my old right arm hath gotten me the victory. So Jesus Christ prayed alone and begged the Father and yet laid all in his lap of mercy saying, Yet not my will but thine be done. And thus he went to the cross, despised and rejected of men the very rulers of his kingdom, hating his appearance because it threatened their concept of what their place and profit should be. Despising him because he held so little importance to their hallowed traditions and their valued politics. And because he exposed them in their apostasy, saying to them before great multitudes of hearers, ye are of your father the devil. Thus fulfilling the prophecy that we read over in Isaiah chapter 26 when it speaks about him speaking to us with other tongues and to the rulers and the men who rule this Jerusalem. When in the further and latter verses of that chapter it declares that they had made a covenant with death and at hell they were with agreement. Jesus Christ was not calling names or speaking rhetorically when he said, Year of your father the devil. He was speaking to men who were known, intentional, self-willed Luciferians who had submitted themselves to the influence of Satan for politics and riches and political influence among the people and who walked in the robes of that God of darkness with whom Christ came to do battle for our souls. And so he is despised and rejected of men. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. There's an interesting remark about Jesus Christ that I think, if I remember, is recorded in the writings of Josephus. When Josephus cites a Roman letter in which one Roman is reporting to his superior officer and he's describing Jesus of Nazareth, this man called the Christ. And one of the interesting things of that letter was, no man has ever seen him smile. 
You see, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. When he came to this world, it was not to laugh and to party and to rejoice. And when I look at that abysmal, asinine, damnable video that is being offered by the apostate charismatics, where some jackass is sporting himself like a clown and rolling about on the ground and giggling and laughing and saying, come follow me, like some drunken idiot. That is not the man of which I read in Scripture that he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The Bible says that we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Who wants to be identified with a criminal? Reminds me of a minister that died recently among the primitive Baptists. I do not remember his name. Herb does. But he joined the church having come out of great apostasy, great heathenism, and great profligacy. He had formerly been a homosexual of the most depraved sort. And by the grace and mercy of God, he was led to Jesus Christ and became persuaded of his everlasting truth. Later called to the ministry. And for a brief time, he served in the pulpits, preaching and proclaiming the Christ that he had previously so rejected and ridiculed. And then, a short time later, it was discovered that he had AIDS. All of the great leaders of the church turned away from him. His appointment ceased. Some declaimed against him. And this man died of AIDS, bearing the weight of that physical infection that he had brought upon himself by his sinfulness. And yet to the last, he was a believer in Christ. But how like the Lord that he worshipped and loved, that he should bear about the image of Christ in his own body. When Christ was imputed with the disease of our sins, did we not hide our faces from him? And did but the meagerest handful stand at the foot of the cross and proclaim his name while all of the other thousands that had been blessed and healed by him and had followed him for three and a half years carefully absented themselves from the scene lest they be connected with the name of Christ the criminal. How characteristic of those redeemed that they should in the depths of their sin and ignorance for a season deny their very Redeemer. How many times in our own past and in our own life have we likewise turned our faces from Him, lest someone know that we be called a Christian? And in the times and the troubles that may be ahead of us, how many times may we be tempted to hide our faces from Him, lest we be numbered with those that call upon His name? Verse 4, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. One of the charges against Jesus Christ as he hung dying on the cross was that he was under the judgment of God. That he was a criminal that had found, been found guilty and condemned by the laws of God's people in God's house. And so he was hung on a tree simply because the Old Testament declares cursed is he that is hung on a tree. And so... The wicked Pharisees and the scribes and the politicians, desiring to besmirch and smear the name of Christ as much as possible, laid upon him a cursed death from under the very law of God. And indeed, 
there was a partial truth to that. Because, you see, he did become sinful. He did become the most sinful man that had ever lived. Have you ever thought upon the name of the word sinful? The word sinful is composed of the basic word sin and then the suffix full, meaning completely imbued with. Therefore, sinful literally means full of sin. The Scriptures declare unto us, unto us that uh, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Each of us bears our own sins and through inheritance the sin of Father Adam. But we bear no one else's sin. Only the sin of Adam and the sins that we have committed. But this man, when he stood before God to die for all of us, took upon himself the sins of all of the multiplied billions for whom God sent him to die and redeem. And they were laid upon him. And the Bible says he was made to be sin for us. And he himself, loaded down on the cross with the sins of millions and millions, cried out in his agony, this man that had been with God from all eternity in the second person of the Trinity, this one who had walked with him from infancy, this one that could sit in the house of God at the age of twelve and confound the doctors with his knowledge of the law that he himself had inspired through the Holy Spirit. This individual Jesus Christ, who not one moment in his life had known the absence of communion with the Godhead itself, this man cried in his agony on the cross as God put him under the curse for all of us. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And men stood by and said, He is cursed of God. And yet these very men that stood at the foot of the cross, these priests, that had, many of whom had sent him there to die, who had hired witnesses to lie against him to make the case, and to play politics and force Pilate who declared after examining him, I find in this man no fault at all. Many of those priests who forced Pilate's hands and said, Well, if you condemn him not, we will appeal to Caesar. Thus forcing the cowardly Pilate to wash his hands and turn him over to their vindictive mercilessness. Many of these men standing there ridiculing and laughing at him and saying he saved others, yet he cannot save himself. This Christ, with almost his dying breath, gazed upon them and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Thus assuring the eternal immortality of their souls clean from sin, even in the midst of their mocking bitterness and hatred. Because we know from the Scripture that the Lord Himself testifying at the tomb of Lazarus said, as He prayed to God, Father, I know that Thou hearest me always. So we know that that prayer of forgiveness was heard by God and answered. And it says in verse 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we're healed. Did you ever stop to think about that? I have. Out of all of the many stripes that were laid on the back of Christ when the soldier scourged him, with those cat of nine tails, having anywhere from eight to ten long three-foot strips of leather, like leather shoelace thongs, attached to an 18-inch wood handle, clipped every six inches with a piece of sharp lead, not unlike a clipped fishing weight that you put on a fishing line. And they would beat him across the back, and that's what the scourging was. 
And when a person was scourged with that weapon, he would literally peel the skin, then the flesh, and then the muscles from the bones underneath. And it was quite frequent that during the scourgings, the underlying, living, pulsating, raw organs could be seen within the framework of the skeleton. That's what Christ was beat under and scourged under. It tells us that they beat his face and they smashed him and plucked the beard from his face with their fingers. Have you ever had somebody as a child come up and grab some of the hair on your arm or leg and give it a jerk? We used to do that all the time when I was a kid. Imagine how it would feel if someone came up and grabbed the hair on your face and ripped it out and left a plug of raw meat hole in its place. That's what they did to Jesus Christ. The prophet declares that his face was so marred, his face was so marred that he wasn't recognizable. That's what the church men did to him in the inner sanctums of the temple when he was sent from Pilate to them to be questioned. They had his hands tied and they proceeded to beat him and to smite him and to rip the beard off of his face and to spit on him and to curse him. And then he was drug out into the streets and stripped naked made to carry his own cross, and his poor broken body was so smashed and beaten from what he had suffered, with that heavy cross lying upon the raw back and the wounds that dripped the blood of his life on the cobblestones as he staggered until he collapsed in the street. And God sent a black man, one Simon of Cyrene, to carry his cross to the hill, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Ham, servant of servants. The only man on God's green earth that stood by him in his dying hour. And then they took him to the cross and they nailed him on the cross and drove the spikes through his feet and through his hands. Set him on a peg about the size of an eight inch section of broom handle to uphold his body. Said he set a stride on it and nailed him there for six long hours while he died. Took a thorn of a crown of thorns and I've seen from Jerusalem, that type of thorn bush. A preacher friend of mine in Augusta, Georgia, had one that one of his folks that had traveled in Israel had brought back. The same kind of, bru- of, of a thorn bush still grows in Jerusalem as grew in that day 2,000 years ago. It has thorns on it an inch and a half long. And they had woven a whiff of it into a crown of several wraps. And you could just imagine that crown being forced down on someone's head and those thorns like sharp nails ripping and tearing his scalp to the bone. And then finally, him giving up the ghost, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then the soldier, to make sure he was dead, taking his lance, thrusting it into his side to pierce his heart. And there came forth straight blood and water showing that the serum of the blood had already begun to separate from the red particulates, thus assuring that he was dead. All of those wounds that Christ suffered, have you ever considered that a portion of those wounds you put there, I put there, with our sins? Every time we sin against God, One more prick of the thorns in his brow. One more tearing of his flesh. One more pounding on the hammer that drives the spike through his bones into the cross. One more of the lash upon his back. Every sin that we commit, every backsliding that we perform, every little 
envious, hateful thing we do to one another adds one more stripe to his poor, broken, scourged back, one more ounce to the cross he staggered and fell under. Because, you see, he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. The scripture says in verse 6, We like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. When you think of Christ on the cross, when you think of how much your profession of Christianity means to you, when you weigh it in the balance against the opportunities of things that you can do in this world that are pleasant and profitable and to be desired under normal circumstances, Remember, remember, we have all turned everyone to his own way. And this was one of the reasons the Lord laid our iniquity upon him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. Jesus Christ stood before those that charged him and said not a word in his own defense. He had already spoken to Pilate and Pilate had found his judgment that in him I find no fault at all. For three and a half years he had been goaded and jeered and accused and debated by some of these very men. And time and time again he had shut their mouths with his arguments till he said and from that time forth there's no man ask him any more questions. When he was 12 years old, he confused and confounded the doctors of the law. But when he was brought before them at a time when most of us would talk ourselves to death to save our lives, he said not one single word. Like the old colored spiritual says, he said not a mumbling word. Why? Because it had all been said. He himself one time stood before his accusers and said, So ye say, for so I am. Thus identifying himself as the great I am of the Bible, who had become flesh to walk among his people and redeem them from their sins. There was no need to speak. It had all been said. Because, you see, Christ did not come to argue and to debate. He came to die. Because we had sinned, and our sins had mounted up before God until like some great wall of blackness, they had sealed off the shining sun, and there was only death and doom beneath it, as on that very day when He hung on that cross and was made to be a curse for us, the Scriptures tell us that a great darkness filled all the land. Did you know that that very darkness is recorded as far away is China and the tribes of American Indians. They talk about a day when the sun was blotted out and for a space of six hours there was no sun or light to be seen and the world was blanketed in the darkness. Same time as our Christ hung on that Savior appears in the records of people all across the surface of this globe. 
That was emblematic of how our sins had blotted out the light of God and separated us from Him so that we were without hope before God in this world. And Christ took that weight of sins upon Himself and bore it for us and destroyed it in His own body on the cross that we might be called the sons and daughters of God because that's why He came. Not to speak, not to argue, not to prevail this time save only over death and the grave. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? And he was. He was put in jail like a criminal, and he was drugged before the bar. And although they found naught against him, and his final accusers even had to hire lying witnesses against him, yet he was processed through the law courts. And he was condemned, however unjustly, and he did become a criminal in the eyes of the laws of man. Who shall declare his generation? He had not one single child of the flesh. He had no life to give to a woman, no time for love that the rest of us seek and enjoy. No time to walk through the pleasant days of life with some dear woman at his side and to tell her and experience from her the love that he felt for her. Because in the place of that woman, God had given him a bride called the church. And he had laid aside every other human ambition and dream in order that he might purchase that bride from a hideous prison and a terrible condition and might wash her with his own blood and present her without spot and wrinkle before his Father in heaven, holy and righteous and pure. And it was for love of her, his church, that he gave up the love of mortal woman. And he had no issue of children thereby because, you see, he was to bring forth through the Spirit the children of God, and to present them holy and righteous before God without the loss of a single one. He himself testified, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he have given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up again at the last day. And then we hear him fulfilling the sonorous tones of the prophet in the book of Hebrews when he says, Father, behold I and all the children which thou hast given me, not the loss of one. Thus presenting the bride before the Father without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. For he was cut off out of the land of the living, and for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Was ever a verse preached that declared the doctrine of election stronger than that? For the transgression of my people was he stricken. When those words were spoken by God, they excluded all other alternatives and possibilities. It was not to die for the human race, but to die for the people of God that Christ came. He himself declared when he walked among us, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so he was cut off and stricken for the transgressions of the people of God. And he made his grave with the wicked. When that man died, he died with two convicted thieves on either side of him. Men who themselves acknowledged their own guilt because the one cursed him and ridiculed him as he was dying. And the other one said to say naught against this man. For we come here deserving this end, but he hath done nothing. 
And then that one turned to Jesus Christ and said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And the Lord, looking upon him, said, This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. So answering the prayer and plea of every sinner that has ever felt burdened by his sins and has ever lifted his face to the Almighty God and begged for the mercies of the cross to flow upon his soul, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. What a comforting thing to hear from the mouth of the Savior. To look upon him in your dying breath and to feel him soothe the brow of your heart with those words, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. What a day to look forward to. Did you know there was a time when there was a Baptist that was persecuted to death in the flames of England in the 1600s? And it was told of him by his friends. They said, when you go to the, when you go to the, to, to, to the, to the burning, give us some sign that we can know that Christ is with you. And they tied the man, and they, the manner was to tie him around the shins and the feet, around the waist, and around the neck with chains, with his hands bound behind his back in many cases. In this case, apparently, the arms were left free because they said as the flames began to grow, he just stared straight forward and said nothing. And his friends were gathered about watching the burning. And then his body was engulfed with the flames. And they said as the flames rose about him and his clothes were consumed and he was one flaming torch of flesh, They said, there in the midst of the flames, they saw his hands rise to God, and his face lift to the heavens, and so he died. There was another man a few weeks later who was likewise consigned to the flames. And when he was dead in the flames in a burned, charred stump, and they loosed the chains to take the body wreckage away, the black body fell over into the ashes of the fire. Hands and feet burned from the stumps. And then they said to the amazement of everybody, that black, charred body struggled to its knees and with its handless stumps clutching the stake, rose to the footless stumps of its burned legs, raised its arms to heaven, and as it toppled forward, tried to sing a few words of a hymn, and so died and passed to glory. What a way to die. What a way to go. To be able to look on the face of the Savior in the midst of the most hideous persecutions and hear those words of forgiveness and tenderness. This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. We remember the man Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich merchant, that came and besought the soldier that he might have him to prepare for the burial. And he was given in to his care. And he was washed and prepared as the manner of the Jews was to bury, wrapped in the burial clothes, much like a mummy. And it was given into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. So he, not having even his own grave, was buried in the tomb of the rich, so fulfilling Scripture. Because he hath done no violence, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. Isn't that interesting? Remember, this is Jesus Christ, who one day, one day, knotted ropes, and in a great fury, kicked over the tables of the money changers, and with those knotted ropes, beat them and cursed them and drove them from the house of God. 
Yet the scriptures say he hath done no violence. You see, the violence is speaking of here is not the righteous violence of the king in his fury against the evildoers. It is the sinful violence of an evil man against the innocent. He did no harm to any innocent person, nor was violence and wrath a pattern of his life, nor a style of his living, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Would that it could be said of all of us that when our day came to die, never a man ever heard us speak a lie. So it was of Christ. Not one piece of deceit passed his lips in 33 years. Why? Because I am the way, the truth, and the life. Is it any mystery that truth itself personified would never be found to speak a lie. You see, the truth of God is always consistent. It is never contrary to itself or proven fact. And this is why it's so necessary for us in the studies of the Word of God and in our dedication of our life to Christ and in our attempt to follow Him and His teachings that we should always seek with the consistency of truth to apply the Word of God in our lives and in our worship. And yet in verse 10 it says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. A curious thing, isn't it? Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The sin to be sin for us, making him to be a curse for us, how can it be said that God who has no pleasure in the death of the wicked was pleased to bruise him for our sins. Because of the scripture that tell us that he was sent to redeem us. And that it was that method of devising a daysman that could lay his hand upon both man and God and stand in each stead equal. By this device it pleased God to provide a solution for sins. So that there would be a man who was equal to men in all things and equal to God in all things. That could stand between God and man and make reconciliation by the offering of himself. It was that pleasure of God and the prospects of deliverance. It was that pleasure of God that's spoken of when the scripture says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, suffering the shame. It's that pleasure of God of which the Scriptures speak in Ephesians when they declare in chapter 1 that He worketh all things according to the pleasure of His own will. It's that pleasure of God not in the prospective sufferings of His only Son, but in the deliverance from sin of His many elect children and the rendering of them pure and perfect before Him in everlasting grace. It was the prospect of the fulfillment of the pleasure of God. Because the Scriptures declare within the next verse, verse 11, He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. 
Because by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. It's the same pleasure spoken of in the very ending of the verse that begins and ends with the pleasure of God. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You see, it was the perspective pleasure of God. It was what the suffering would accomplish, the deliverance of His people unto everlasting glory, that throughout endless days they could be with God in heaven and be the friends of God and shout and praise and glorify Him and enjoy the magnificence of His bounty as children, the riches of their Father. That was the pleasure that it pleased God to bruise Him for. And He indeed made His soul an offering for sin. Because in Jesus Christ we see all of the poor, innocent animals that ever died on the altars of God, looking forward and foreshadowing this great and single death of the Lamb of God, who by one offering hath taken away sin forever, and hath perfected them that are sanctified. That first poor, innocent Lamb that God Himself slew with His own hands, to give the coats of skin to father and mother Adam and Eve in the very dawn of time when they had sinned before God and brought their curse upon us all the Lord showed their deliverance someone says there's no proof in the Bible that Adam was saved I say there is because we see about the gospel of Jesus Christ which the writer of Matthew declares was spoken by God by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began And my friends, in the beginning of the world, there was only one man, and that man was Adam. And there was only one time that we can say of Adam that he was a holy prophet of God, and that was after God Himself took the coat of skins which required the bloody death of the atoning animal and clothed him and his wife with them so that they might walk free of sin in this world yet under the legal curse of their transgression. So Adam was a saved man, saved by the same grace that is passed to us, the grace and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He made his soul an offering for sin, and he saw his seed. Every single one, as I've stated before, and I quote again from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which He hath given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up again at the last day. That's the pleasure of the Lord that prospered in His hand. That's the seed that He left. Not the seed of generation, but the seed of regeneration. Not the seed of nature, but the seed of grace. Not the seed of Adam, but the seed of God. And finally it says of him in this place, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. That fulfillment still waits. That fulfillment still waits until the day when he shall appear in the heavens with the entire army of God's angels and God's redeemed to come to this earth and do battle with the forces of evil, who will be gathered together as the old prophet cried out in horror when he saw it through the eyes of grace centuries ago, 
multitudes, multitudes in the valleys of decision. When he shall meet the armies of this earth and destroy them, dashing them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Then he shall take the kingdoms of this earth and divide them with his saints for whom he has died and delivered them. Then will be fulfilled the promise that he made, If I die, I will go to my father's house and prepare a place for you that where I am, there ye may be also. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will return and gather you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. If it were not so, I would have told you. And so, dear brethren, that is the message, or something very like unto it, that that old servant of God heard in the chariot on that day so long ago, when Philip was led by God to join himself to the chariot and preach unto him Jesus. And that's what brought that old man of God down to the water. See, heareth water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And he was told, only if thou believest thou mayest. And his response is the same response that God's people have made through the centuries until this day. The same response made by you and I in the day when we came to God. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Let us stand and be dismissed in prayer. (coughs) Dear Lord, we thank Thee for the many blessings that Thou hast bestowed upon us, and we pray, if it be Thy gracious will, that Thou wilt comfort us upon the days that we are blessed to be able to fulfill this ordinance of simplicity, simple bread, simple wine, and upon occasion the washing of the saints' feet, as enjoined by the Master to the servants. This ought ye to do, and not leave the other undone. Dear Lord, bless us to meditate upon what it means when Christ spoke such a simple flow of words, saying, This is my blood which was shed for many for the remission of sins. Bless us to meditate upon them, dear God, and see through the lens of the wine and the bread, focusing the beams of truth, upon the light of thine eternal glory and to perceive the panorama of grace that spreads before us where God himself waits upon the throne for our gathering by the angels to his presence and his son, our great brother and redeemer by his side to gather us to the throne of God on the day of our homecoming. May, O dear Lord, this vision of grace and truth motivate us and strengthen us and guide us all the days of our life that we may so live in this world that in that great day of thine appearing and that blessed gathering to thee we shall not be ashamed but rejoice at thine appearing and be glad in that day and jump for joy because we're the sons and the daughters of God. Comfort us, O Lord, with this vision this consolation, this faith of thy gospel, this repeated declaration and promise from the word of God, that it may be the light of truth that guides us through the darkness of this world until the day of our death and deliverance into thy presence. For we ask it and pray it with thanksgiving in the name of Jesus Christ and for his